This message comes to you from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon, where we are committed to living like Jesus and sharing His love. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. You know, this morning, uh, we're going to continue our conversations. We've been, we've been on this series for about five weeks now called Questions. And just like the video that we just saw, we see that a lot of people today have lots of opinions and lots of thoughts about God and religion and all different kinds of difficult questions that are asked. And uh, it's evident that their answers are completely different than another person. And so we can see that there's a lot of challenges today when it comes to difficult questions. And we felt that we would take just some time together as a congregation and talk about the tough questions that people are asking and bring some honest answers to just help people understand a little bit more about these questions. The reality is, is that all of us, we're we're asking questions and how we perceive the truth to those questions in our lives and how we apply them will have a great bearing on how our life unfolds and how it ultimately uh, ends up. And so it's important to understand that the truth that you receive will have a huge impact on your life. And ever since we are uh, going clear back to when we're young children, we start asking questions. And the reason why we ask questions is our longing for truth. There's a a peace in us. There's a void. There's a hole. There's an instability and insecurity. or There's something going on within us that we can't understand or discern. So we go beyond ourselves to ask the question in hopes that we can find truth to help us satisfy that void or that need. And so we've, we've asked so far five important questions. We talked about is God real? We talked about, is the Bible true? We spent an entire week talking about why does God allow evil and pain and suffering? We then had a week where we talked about injustice and why does a just God allow injustice? And then last week, Pastor Daryl Corbin did a bang-up job. He talked about, so is the church after my money? And those are some tough questions. They may not be popular answers, but Our hope is that in giving you these answers that they will help to solidify maybe some voids or some longings within you. And the whole goal for this series really is to to do two things. Number one is we want any person, whether they're listening online or happen to be a guest or maybe you're new to this whole idea of God, church, Christianity, that if you have a question and you're searching for truth, We want to help you find truth. Jesus said that you shall find the truth or you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And what Jesus is basically saying is that there is truth that when you align it to your life will bring stability and peace and hope and joy and comfort and security. And so he's saying that when you find right truth in an area and you apply it to your life, when you know that truth and you find it, it will set you free. There'll be freedom and abundant life. So hopefully during this series, we're helping you where there's that void for you to apply truth to your life and say, okay, I feel like I have stability now in that area. The second thing that we're trying to do in this series 
is trying to help everyone else that maybe has found a certain element of truth and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ to help you understand that when people ask you these questions, that you now have the answers to give to them. 1 Peter 3.15 says this. It says that we should always be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within us. That when people ask us the question, we should give them intelligent, honest answers to help them because God wants to use every single one of you to help people around you in sharing that truth. And so this morning, we're going to dive into our next question, and we're going to talk about this one question, don't all religions lead to God? Today, there's over 6,000 organized world religions or so-called Christian cults. So there's a lot of choices that you and I, or anybody that would be listening today, you have the choice to pick a path. That path will dictate the outcome of your life. So what you believe in really matters. It's important to understand that. And so as we take a look at all of the different choices, we should agree upon one thing. And that is thinking rationally, logically, and listen, exclusively about that one path is important. It's actually smart thinking. Because if you're going to base your entire eternal destiny on a set of beliefs, you had better know that it's true and follow it to the letter of the law. And so, again, Christians today would be labeled as narrow-minded or exclusive in their thinking. And I want to say back, thank you. Because I want to be very exclusive in my mindset regarding what I believe. But when you step outside of Christianity, doesn't every religion teach exclusivity to a certain degree? I mean, Mormons would teach that their way is the only way, or Islam, or Hinduism, or Buddhism. And if you don't abide or adhere to these truths, that you will get off path and ultimately not get out of life what you expect simply because you're not following their exclusive mindset. So Christianity is not the only religion. Just about every religion practices exclusivity. But we also practice that in many areas of our life. We actually, when it comes to areas of conviction or hills to die for, there are certain things that we're very opinionated about and have an exclusive mindset on. For instance, one would be marriage. When I said to my wife, I do, and I chose her, I now made the decision that I'm not going to choose any of you other ladies. In fact, the billions of ladies today, you don't get me. Just kidding. It's because when... That's true, you know. I didn't think that would be funny, but maybe it is. Yeah, I'm pretty hot, you know. So anyways, but when it comes to my wife, when I said yes to her, I said no to everyone else. I said, okay, I'm going to have an intimate personal relationship with my wife, meaning I'm not going to have that with you. I call that exclusivity. When it comes to government, you can't have democracy and communism in the same country. It doesn't work. When it comes to economic policy, you can't have capitalism and socialism 
happening in the same country. It causes conflict. It creates chaos. But something even simple as mathematics. We would all agree that two plus two equals, it equals what? How about five? I was talking with one gentleman once. He goes, you're so narrow-minded about your religion. I said, well, what's two plus two? He says, four. I said, come on, be a little bit more open-minded. Why not 5.23? He goes, well, that's not true. The fact is it's four. I said, thank you. He was being very exclusive and opinionated because he should have been because it's right thinking. It's logical. It makes sense. And any time that you begin to take away exclusivity and you bring in competing thoughts or philosophy, it creates incoherent thinking. It creates internal chaos. I was sharing with a guy downtown a little while ago that proclaimed to be a white magic Satanist Jehovah's Witness Jew. Welcome to Portland, right? And he couldn't understand all of the conflict going on inside. And on one hand, I kind of get it. I'm, okay, I want to serve God because I'm a, on this side, I'm a Jehovah's Witness Jew or whatever God looks like to me. But on the other side, I'm supposed to be, uh, my allegiance should be pledged to Satan. So I got God and Satan. And then I want to go spend eternity with God, but then I should go spend eternity with the devil. And I mean, he's just going through all these. I said, bro, I mean, like, I won't say what I said. You just like, how dumb can you be and still breathe, right? Just... <laughs> the problem was this, is that he was trying to, trying to deal with the fact that all worldviews don't necessarily work together. It's okay to be exclusive if you know you're right. Let me just ask a question. How many of you here this morning would believe that all religions lead to God. Can I see a show of hands, please? All religions lead to God. Okay, I got one hand. Now, now just, just thank you for, for raising your hand. I believe all religions ultimately lead to God. Now, this is gonna, now just, just hold on for a second because this is contrarian principle to what maybe you've been taught. Here's the reality. Even though all religions may not teach that all paths lead to God, ultimately every person, regardless of the path you choose, will stand before God. Ultimately, whatever you believe or don't believe, whoever God is or isn't, regardless of what they teach or what they don't teach, the Bible tells us in Romans that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. You will get there. Every path, again, whether they teach it or not, will ultimately get you to God. You'll stand before him. Here's the kicker. Although thousands of religions and that pathway ultimately will get you to God, only one will get you through to God. So there's a lot of people today, again, and I'm not saying that even all religions teach this, separate from belief systems, the reality is is that regardless of what you believe or what you don't believe, 
it will ultimately get you to stand before God. That's what he says. Once to die and then the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. So we're all gonna stand regardless of what God looks like to you or doesn't look like to you. You're gonna stand one day before him and what you believed and what, you, what path you chose will ultimately determine whether you get to go through to him or whether you're eternally separated from him. Are you with me? So, your path will dictate your eternal outcome. And the bottom line is that it really does matter what you believe. This morning, what I would like to do is I would like to pick one of the 6,000 paths, and I want to talk about the path that Jesus talks about. As a Bible-believing Christian church, we would believe that Jesus is the central figure to Christianity. That everything that we believe rises and falls on the fact that he's either God or he's not. We believe that he is God. And Jesus himself, it wasn't necessarily just what he taught that caused people to believe in him. It was who he said he was and actually what he did that caused people then to believe in what he said. And Jesus makes two critical, life-changing, dramatic statements. Again, he made thousands of them, but in, in regards to this message this morning, I want to look at two statements that Jesus made regarding himself that are paramount to which path you ultimately choose. The first thing that Jesus said was that he was the son of God, therefore being God himself. Again, there's a lot of people that have proclaimed to be God, but Jesus himself says it in a way and has evidence behind it that really gives some legitimacy to his claim. He's either a liar He's a lunatic, or he's truly the Lord. In one particular case, Jesus is on trial. It's right before his crucifixion. The high priest is asking him one last time. He says to him, are you the Messiah? You can find this in Mark 14, verses 61 through 64. The high priest says, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Are you truly who I've heard you proclaim to be? And Jesus says right in front of that crowd to the high priest says, I am. I am the son of man. I am the blessed one. And he just basically says that I will sit in places of power at God's right hand, coming on the clouds of heaven. And they tore their clothes and said, enough, enough, that's blasphemy. What should we do with him? And they say, kill him, he should die. He's making a statement to say, I am God. That's a big statement. The second thing that Jesus says, I think it's important to see, is that he said that he was the only way through to a right relationship with God. So not only is he saying, okay, I'm God, and he's not saying, okay, there's thousands of the ways. He says, there's one way. I am that way. 
John 14, 6, I'm the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one, nudge your neighbor saying, including you, come on, no one will get to the Father, listen, but through me. Again, there's a lot of people today would teach different ideas or thoughts about Jesus. The Mormons would say that he was one of many gods, that he actually had three wives. The Mormons would teach that Jesus was a polygamist. He had three wives. He was the spirit brother of Lucifer, spirit brother of the devil. There's a lot of other religions today. Jehovah's Witness believe that he was Michael the Archangel, or Muslims believe he was a great prophet or a teacher, but he's below Muhammad in importance. And so there's a lot of different religions that would, would point to saying, well, we believe that Jesus exists, but not Jesus is God, and not Jesus is the only way. Jesus, they should probably ask him because he says, I appreciate your opinion but I want to let you know what I think and what I say. I mean, go to the source. Jesus says, no, wait a minute. I'm God. I'm the only God, and I'm the only way. End of matter. Not a question mark, exclamation point. Jesus makes that statement. And it's sad because when you go and look at different uh, statistics and surveys, a a recent Pew survey uh, uh, found that 65% of all professing Christians in America say that there are multiple paths to eternal life. In fact, 80% say that there's at least one path that's non-Christian in its orientation that can lead to salvation. They're right in one sense, and that is that it will get them to God, but it may not get them through to God. That was Jesus' point. And so why should we trust these two, these two statements that Jesus made? When he says, I'm God and I'm the way. There's thousands of paths. If you take this path, you'll get through to God The other ones will get you to him, but will be separated from him. Why should we believe that? Why should we look at this one path out of all 6,000 paths as the path that we should follow? Well, today I'd like to give you kind of four thoughts or four facts. Again, we could give you hundreds. But I want to talk about four important facts of why we should trust Jesus' claim that he was God. The first one, which is important, and you may not look at this as important, but fact number one is this, is that Jesus actually did exist. That's important. There's some people that would say, oh, well, he's just kind of an imaginary figure. He's kind of a fairy tale story. But when you go to the New Testament, and again, we we talked about the Bible being true in week two. I'd encourage you to go back to to look at that so that you see the infallibility of the Bible in order to, to make this statement true. You have four gospels. You have Paul who wrote 13 epistles. You have the different epistles of John and Peter. They have one thing in common is that they were all eyewitness accounts that Jesus actually existed. They were all written within a generation of when he walked on planet earth. Even those outside of the writers, there were the thousands of followers, there were the multitudes of people, there were even his enemies that even said that he existed. 
And you can go outside of the Bible, look at all of the historical evidence and all the different history books and different people that had written certain things, even a generation or a different century afterwards. Josephus wrote about it in AD 93 and Pliny the Younger in AD 112 and uh, Cornelius Tacitus, he was a, a Roman senator, but he's actually uh, been labeled as the most um, profound ancient historian. He writes about the claim that Jesus actually walked this earth. These are outside of biblical writings or teachings. These are history books and people that are outside of the Christian realm that looked in and said, okay, let's just face the fact, number one, he was around. They're not saying that he was God, but they are admitting to the one fact, Jesus did exist. That's important to understand. The second fact that we should look at in regards to his claim that he was God was the uniqueness of his birth. There were a lot of people that proclaimed to be God, but they didn't have people prophesying for thousands of years before the genealogy of that person. It was just someone that maybe drank a little bit too much Kool-Aid or something. So, okay, I'm God. I mean, it's one thing to state it, but if it's another thing to have thousands of years of proof of prophecy talking about your genealogies. There's 42, if you read uh, in, in the New Testament, there's actually 42 different genealogies, three groups of 14 that talk about and prophesy that Jesus would be from Abraham and then out of Abraham, he would be in the line of Isaac versus um, um, Issachar and so, or excuse me, not Issachar, but Ishmael. And uh, after that, it would go from that into Jacob. And Jacob would have 12 sons and the 12 tribes. And one of those tribes would be Judah. And out of Judah, there would be Jesse. And out of Jesse, he would have seven sons. And that youngest son would be David. And he would be the one. And I mean, when you just think about the genealogies and how all of these trace down to a certain time and that Finally, he would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem in a poverty, in an impoverished state. It's amazing to just look at the genealogies themselves and just going, wow, that's pretty unique. But I think what's even more unique is, is the fact that he was born from a virgin. Come on, guys, that just doesn't happen. I mean, was the last time you had someone that you knew that said, hey, I got pregnant by an angel today. I mean, it's just, it isn't around. It doesn't happen ever. <laughs> Thousands of years before his birth in Isaiah 7, it talks about that the virgin will conceive a child and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. That there will be a virgin, and it talks about where she will fall in the line and the lineage. And when that lady finally is here and he is born, that actually it's going to be God. It's going to be Emmanuel. Everyone, like I said, doesn't even comprehend the magnitude of that statement. I mean, when you really think about what happened there, I mean, every religion will try to grasp some way, somehow with this idea. Like, for instance, Christian Science Today, that lady that started, her name is Mary Baker Eddy, and she wrote this idea that, that Mary had a spiritual thought, and boing, there was Jesus. 
That's what they teach. It wasn't, it wasn't the conception, conception through the Holy Spirit or some kind of immaculate conception. It was simply a thought that birthed Jesus in Mary's womb. I mean, you look at different religions out there. Again, Mormons don't believe that he actually was the result of a human birth. It's important to understand that his origin dictates his bloodline. And again, if Jesus was born with a natural father, he would then have sinful nature due to the bloodline, meaning that his blood would have no power over sin, healing, death whatsoever, because he would just be another man who proclaimed to be God. But the fact that he was conceived immaculately through the Holy Spirit makes his father the father, therefore his bloodline is pure. That's important to understand. Why the virgin birth is so incredibly important. And when you think about it, the virgin birth, when, when you look at his hometown where he was born in Nazareth, in Mark 6, it talks about it, that even the town called him the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. That's important because culture during those days identified specific children by their father's name, never by their mother's name, unless paternity was in question. And so here was an entire village, a smaller village of Nazareth that spent their whole life watching this happen, growing up and realized, ah, Joseph's not this guy's dad. It says it in Mark 6, 3. It says they scoffed and says, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, not Joseph. That's important to understand. Even when you come to Mary herself, she questioned the virgin birth until Gabriel, the archangel, announces, just like, whoa, are you kidding me? And when she finally had a visitation, it says, then she pondered these things in her hearts. It wouldn't be the story that you would want to use if you're pregnant in that day. I mean, no one would believe it. It's hard to believe it even today. I mean, imagine as a dad, your daughter comes to you and says, hey, dad, I, we need to talk. I got some bad news and some good news. And you say, well, what's the bad news, baby? Ah, uh, I'm pregnant. Ah, right? Ah, uh, dad, dad, wait, wait. Good news, it was an angel. I mean, it's just, you would never say that unless it was true and you were willing to die for that truth. Even Joseph himself was ready to call off the marriage until he had a visitation. And then he realized, despite the hardship and the pain that I'm going to face, I'm standing up for this truth because it's true. He did exist. He had an unusually unique birth. The third reason why we should really take a look at Jesus' claim as God is that he, divide, excuse me, he defied nature like only God can. There's a lot of miracles where God works through us to do things, but there's few miracles that are beyond the ability for man to even do that would be only God himself being able to do. John 14, Jesus says this, John 14, 11, he says, Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So he's, he's saying this, believe in me that we're one. He says, but if you don't believe, 
at least believe in the evidence and the works I do. So, okay, well, that's hard to grasp, Jesus being God. Okay, you said that, but let's look at the evidence. And he's basically saying, you need to understand that I have all authority over all the power of the enemy, over forces of nature. I can stop storms. I can raise people from the dead. I can command angels and demons at will to do whatever um, based upon my name. And in the Bible, you find there's 39 recorded miracles in the book of Acts, excuse me, in, in the four Gospels. However, it also says in John that he did so many miracles that if you were to write them down, all of the books in the world could not contain all of the things that he's done. And again, as you talk to people today, they're kind of skeptical about this idea of miracles and did they really happen and were they set up? And so, I mean, let's talk about a few of them. Let's talk about Luke 8, the casting out of the demons, out of the one man that was up in the cemetery. He was naked for years in chains, frothing at the mouth, busting chains. That could have been set up. I mean, Jesus could have said, hey, listen, I want to make sure this is written in my book. So what I need you to do is strip naked, put some chains on. You go hang out in the cemetery for a couple years. Anytime someone gets near, you go, and then when I say to come out, then you just go, hi, I'm all better, right? That could have happened. You're right. It could have happened. So maybe let's talk about another one. Maybe where it talks about the the healing of of leprosy and you look at Luke 17. Maybe Jesus just used some makeup and put some sores all over him so when he washed and cleansed it came off and hey, I'm back. It could have happened. What about the feeding of the 5,000? Maybe Jesus had something up his sleeve. Maybe he just put his hand over the basket and he had a bunch of loaves up there and Peter's on the backside. And he, he keeps shaking his hand and whoa, there's a couple of fish and a couple, of, they're getting put up the backside and he's just shaking over the baskets and that could have happened. Just feeding them from the back end up through there, you know, could have happened. What about the cursing of the fig tree? I mean, I, I've already envisioned it. You, you, you get a, a bottle of Roundup weed killer and you put it on your back with a little pack and put a little tube down and you got a little spray thing and he goes, and then they be, be cursed. And he moves his hand like this and it sprays a little bit of stuff on it and the tree withers and dies. It could happen. <laughs> but what about walking on water in the midst of the sea? Maybe God. What about the, the calming of a violent storm. Imagine a hurricane coming your way and you go, okay, now, and it just goes, wow. What about in John 11 where he raises Lazarus from the dead after being dead three days? Bam, come to life, bam, oh, wow. And the Bible says that there's so many of those, not only during the gospel times, but throughout history. We could sit here today and talk about the thousands of miracles, people being raised from the dead, reading stories about in India where arms are missing and people praying for them and their arms actually growing back where they had been cut off. I didn't happen. Too late. Already did. Can't change it. But you read these stories of people 
that were blind. Dylan was just at a youth camp, prayed for a guy that was blinded in one eye at this youth camp, and his sight came back. I mean, you can't make that up. There are people all around that know this kid's dilemma, and all of a sudden he can see. There's billions of examples that when you pray in the name of Jesus, that all of hell trembles, miracles take place doesn't happen in the name of Allah or in the name of Buddha, in the name of Hare Krishna. You don't see those things happening like they do other than in the name of Jesus. But fact number four, the last fact is this. We recognize that he died. He lived. He had a unique birth. He performed miracles. But after his death, he, he was resurrected. This one really is kind of the the pinnacle to today's question, and it, it really all comes down to this one question. Did he die, and did he rise again? Because if he didn't, Christianity is a useless path and religion. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of all your sins. This is Paul himself saying, if you can't prove that, this path is like any other path. When you look at the resurrection of Christ in Christianity, you can't separate the two. It's either 100% true or it's the biggest scam to ever be introduced to humanity. And when you think of the crucifixion itself, it was a, a very horrific type of death. It was a punishment that elongated the death process and the pain process. It was developed by the, the Romans during that time to create maximum torture. And when you look at Jesus and when he went to the cross, it wasn't just the nailing, but it was the whipping before and it was the, the crown on his head and the bar that he had to carry and he would go to the cross and he would pay that painful price for you and for me and he would die on that cross. But not only that, in John it talks about them sticking his side with the spear and blood and water pouring out. And medical professionals today would say that that's a sure sign or evidence that actually that there was death because of actually the fluids that would leave his body. So it's important to understand that Jesus did die on the cross. This isn't just a Christian-based thing. Many religions today, many historians, many people that aren't even proclaimed Christians as you look throughout history would say, yeah, he did exist, and yeah, he actually went to the cross and he actually died. Where it begins to go into a different arena is when the tomb then that he was placed in was empty. And again, there's a lot of debate around this. This is an important part because a lot of people would say that the Christians of those days had a strategic plot. They had a little countdown clock of three days and they just kind of hid out behind the tree waiting for the third day to continue. Then they'd remove his body and hide him and then say that he rose from the dead. But when you look at the historical accounts, you find that Mary and the other women, they weren't thinking about that. 
They actually says that they took all of their, their oil and their spices and all of their perfumes and they went to the tomb to prepare his body. They actually thought when they went there, they were going to find a dead man. So it wasn't Mary that thought that. It wasn't the other women that thought that. When you think about Peter and John and when they went running out because they heard that there was no one in the tomb, it says they went running out, not out of faith, but out of disbelief. And they went into the tomb and it says that as they went into the tomb, they then believed what Jesus had said. That Up until that time, they did not fully understand the revelation of his teaching. Peter wasn't thinking he was going to be raised from the dead. John, those two that were closest to him. I mean, you take it one step further and you just, you look at uh, the idea of these women themselves that, that they would be the ones that would be the voice piece. The first reporters on the scene. You wouldn't do that if you were being strategic. Women of those day were less classed citizens. They couldn't even vote most of the time because of them being a lesser part. You wouldn't, if you were being strategic, say, well, let's let the women be the one that report. I mean, it just, it doesn't make sense. Even Thomas himself is sitting there and he goes, yeah, you're standing before me, but show me your hands. I mean, I don't even believe that it's you. So the idea that the disciples had this strategy to take his body doesn't align with historical accounts. So if they didn't plan it, and his body was truly or supposedly not taken by them, you think that the religious leaders of that time would have taken his body and paraded his body through the towns to once and for all stop the entire move of Christianity. Here he is, you say he's risen, here he is, he's dead. It would have stopped everything. Like Paul said, if he didn't rise from the dead, your religion is useless. The truth remains that Jesus did live. He did have a unique birth. He did perform great miracles. He did die. He did rise again. And he is alive forevermore. 500 people saw him after. You can clap. Thank you. Over 500 people saw him after he rose again. There were a lot of people, his disciples and followers, Acts 1, verses 9 through 12, you read it, that when he finally ascended, there was people around him. It wasn't just like he slipped off to a different country. They're standing there. He goes, hey, guys, we're going to go now. It's just like, It's It's in the Bible. They saw the ascension. Even Stephen in Acts 7, 55, when he was being stoned to death, it says that the heavens opened up and he saw Jesus standing at the right throne. Luke writes about this account. He's going, this is what happened. This this is amazing. So not only did he die and not only was he seen afterwards, but he never died again. There's some people that have been risen from the dead, but they die again. He never died again. He saw John on the island of Patmos and he says, in, in Revelation 1.18, he says, I am he who lives and am alive forevermore. 
And he says, by the way, I got the keys. Hell and death, I'm holding them right now. So why does all this matter? When we talk about all these things, why does it really matter? It's because it has everything to do with your ultimate destination. Will all paths ultimately get you to God, whether they teach that or not? Emphatically, yes. Regardless of what you believe or don't believe, at the end of the day, every single one of you will stand before him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Why does this matter? It's because you better pick the right path. The path that you choose will dictate your eternal outcome. Right now, here's one thought, is that all of us today eventually will stand before him. We will get to him. The question you need to ask yourself, will you get through to him? That's why Jesus said, I am the way I am the truth, not a truth, and I am the life. Catch these words. No one gets to the Father but through me. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I'd love to have the band up to the platform. You know, this morning, I would like to give every person that hears my voice, both in this room, listening online, podcast, whatever it might be, to ask themselves this one very, very important question. What path am I on? What path have you currently chosen? You will get to him, but the thing you better ask yourself is, will you get through to him? Paul made it so clear. He said, listen, the way to eternal life, the way to an intimate personal relationship, Romans 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, you'll get through to him. Not only will you have a personal, intimate relationship with him now, new nature, new start, new identity, abundant life while you live now, but when you stand before him on that day, he'll say, well done. And you'll step through to eternal life with Christ. The Bible says that there'll be sheep and goats. There'll be those that make it through and those that don't. Those that aren't written in the book of life will have eternal separation from him. It really does matter what you believe. Let me just ask this last question here. Anybody in this room today, 
If you walked in here today and you realized that maybe your belief system or your lifestyle has you on a different path and you recognize today that you need to get on the right path with Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity now. Jesus makes it so simple. He says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that I'm Lord, that I raised from the dead. He says, you'll be saved. You'll be born again. You'll have a relationship with me. But bottom line, the choice is yours. He gives you the choice to respond. If that's you this morning, well, everybody has their heads down, eyes closed. Would you do me a favor? Just slip up your hand and say, Pastor Mark, you're speaking to me today. I want to get on a different path. I want to get on the path with Jesus today. Just slip your hand up right now. Just put it up. Boom. Just very quickly. Speaking to you. Just raise it. Thank you very much. Anyone else? Do you know I need to get my life right with God? Today is my day. Anyone else? Thank you, ma'am. I see your hand. Thank you in the back. I see your hand. Anyone else? Just slip your hand up. All he's going to do when he catches you is love you. Anyone else at all? Thank you. Church, would you pray with me for these people that have raised their hand? Just just pray with me this prayer together, especially those that raised your hand or maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you want to make this decision today. Pray this prayer. Say, dear Jesus, today I ask you to forgive me of all my sins and come into my life and be my Lord and to be my Savior. I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. Therefore, today, I proclaim that I'm saved in Jesus' name. Come on, church, would you put your hands together for these people that raise their hands? Come on.